If the art sector relies entirely on funding coming out of budgets with arts in their name, it's going to face a pretty grim few years. There's a fat kid in his room dancing in his chair to a Romanian gay boy band. Oddly, that's a big cultural event. We've got Harry Potter. Mm, wonder where that came from. We've got Lord of the Rings. Mm, wonder where that came from. That came out of, you know, great British culture. We're living in really interesting times. Pretty much everything we knew about the way things were meant to be is in the process of being dismantled or falling apart of its own accord. Are we going to look back for Gargarmania and not go, oh, that really typified naughty. Over all the bridges, <laughs> echoes in rows, talking at the same time. Welcome to 2020 Visions, a series that takes the long view, looking at politics, society and culture over the next decade. I'm Biz, and once again I'm joined by cultural polymath James Knight. In our final show of the series, we explore the world of culture, looking at film, music, TV, books and visual art. Guest contributors include the Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts, Matthew Taylor, Director of the British Film Institute, Amanda Neville, Cultural Commentator and Author of Lost Worlds, Michael Bywater, Ken Trott, who used to work on the BBC's groundbreaking Play for Today series, Jamie Hodgson, the enemy's new music guru, XL Recordings' Caius Pawson, Dan Franklin from publisher Canongate, and curator and artist Anna Harger. The methods by which we consume culture are rapidly changing and adapting to meet technological advances, differing social demands, and an increased and unprecedented level of commercial involvement. We question the effect that these technological, societal and commercial forces will have on UK culture over the next decade. Free access to cultural content is now seen as the right of the consumer. Will the saturization of free content lead to declining standards or will it create a more transparent, open and competitive public forum for culture to be created? Will the egalitarian ability to access the tools with which to create culture cause an influx of cultural creativity or will such an ease of access dilute the standard of culture that we produce? Will the rise in commercial involvement in culture, whether it constitutes artists licensing their art to advertisements, TV and film, or via direct collaboration with brands, potentially damage cultural creativity, credibility and integrity? Or does it represent a means for the artist to survive and continue creating art and culture in a changing industry? Will the traditional organs of cultural administration wither in the face of these technological, societal and commercial changes? Or will they be able to adapt and harness these changes to entrench their positions as our cultural commentators and facilitators? Culturally, what have we lost? Who best to ask than cultural essayist and author of Lost Worlds, Michael Bywater? I'm writing about Oscar Wilde at the moment, and he said something really rather interesting, uh, the famous remark that life imitates art, because it was generally held, if you can say anything, it was generally held art. Uh, imitates life. The artist looks at life, adds something extra, draws it, paints it, puts it on the stage, writes about it, sings it, whatever it may be, sculpts it out of a piece of rock. Wilde said, no, life imitates art, which was not as fatuous and camp as it sounds, although in many ways he was a fatuous and camp man. Um, one of the examples he gave was a very serious one. He said, there were no fogs, London fogs, yeah, famous London fogs, there were no London fogs until Corot and the Impressionists started painting them. Before then, there was the you, know, you went out and it was foggy and you thought, oh, Lord, it's, oh, no. what's the day like, darling? No, horrible, oh, horrible, can't see your hand in front of the face. 
Then they start painting the fogs, the mists, the smogs, the whatever it is. And everyone says, oh, it's very, very beautiful, isn't it? The way that, um, look how the, the point sources of light are somehow turned into, into, into hazy globes. Look how, how everything sort of recedes into distance. Look how much bigger the world looks because of aerial perspective and all this. We saw the world uh, as, as a consequence of what, what various artists had done with it. Now, a very good example of that, I think, in a different area, is uh, the death of Little Joe in um, Bleak House Dickens. Little Joe is absolutely on the deck, uneducated, untutored, unhoused, real, uh, a, a level of social castaway, which we, we really hardly have now, but he was common. He swept a crossing. The roads were muddy, covered in horseshit and straw, and there's Little Joe, who is this nobody, sort of person nobody was written about before Dickens, sweeping the crossing so that the uh, middle class and people could cross the road without getting the hems of their skirts and their, their trousers filthy and muddy, and he dies. And Dickens does this extraordinary thing of stepping out of the page. Quite remarkable for him. I mean, he says little Joe was dead. It's quite an affecting scene. As Wilde said, you know, you have to have a so heart of stone not to laugh at it. And then Dickens steps out of the page and starts shouting at the audience, dead, dead, uh, lay dead, honourable gentlemen and dishonourable gentlemen, dead, and he goes on, and dead and dying thus about us every day. And suddenly people start, if you like, to see little Joe. He hasn't existed before that point. Now they see him. He's there. He's all over the place. He is indeed dying, dying thus about us every day, but he's visible. Think what's gone into making him visible. First of all, printing technology. Second of all, railway technology. The railways have come, so books can be distributed around the country, part works can be distributed around the country. Thirdly, I think it's about six, seven years before Bleak House was published, W.H. Smith has started opening railway bookstores because people get bored on the train. There's a, there's a national chain of book distributors. The technology is moving the culture, if you like, to change the world. You can't get away from that. Uh, where does that leave us now? The, the whole technology has changed. So the, the idea of a mass culture, I think, ceases to be important. We've gone from the most primitive sort of culture, if you like, and I know we're not supposed to say primitive, but I'm going to say it, it, it will primeval or primordial, or whatever you want to call it, one-to-one. -one. You and I sit down and you tell me a story and I listen. I say, oh, no, really, did you? God, blimey, you're great. We then go to one-to-many, which isn't that much of a, a difference. You sit there, and I've told a few people, and they all come to hear you tell the story, and they all sit there going, oh, you did, God, God, that's amazing, wow, extraordinary. All that's happened, I think, over the last, well, where do we go back to? We probably go back to 4,000 years, the Epic of Gilgamesh. We certainly go back 3,000 years to the recitation of the Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey. We certainly go back 2,500 years to Athenian tragedy, and thereafter, right up until about... 10, 15 years ago, we've had bigger manys. It's still one-to-many, essentially person sitting there telling a story and many people listening. That has all changed. For the first time ever, we've got proper many-to-many -many technology. That means telling stories, whether they're, they're visual, whether they're graphical, whether they're um, written out, whether they're audio. Telling stories is something that is on the same par as consuming stories. By stories, I mean texts, and by texts, I mean anything that can be read, and by read, I mean 
anything that we can interpret and take into our internal model of the world. So a play is a story, but also a sculpture is a story, a building is a story. Everything is text. What kind of one big cultural event will happen over the next 10 years that will shake the foundations of traditional cultural institutions? The idea of there being one big, one massive cultural event, I think, I can't quite see that coming about. You can have, if you like, what the, what the, the awful PR Burks and now started calling virals. You know, like the guy dancing to the Numa Numa song. That that actually was a big cultural event. There's a fat kid in his room dancing in his chair to a thing by what were they? A, a Romanian gay boy band. Oddly, that's a big cultural event because it, it's a new way of distributing things. I think the big technology which will happen. You know, like musical, we needed gas lighting. Like the theatre, we needed uh, arc lighting so people could see because after the Industrial Revolution, everyone had to get their entertainment after dark, so we needed lighting. It'll be a technology. It'll be a technology we can't even see. It will probably be upload speeds as fast as download speeds. So real-time live interaction rather than waiting for the stuff to go up at the moment. I think in 20 years' time, the idea of loading stuff onto a server, then other people go and get it off the server, will seem really antique. Just like... Uh, Huxley, when he reissued Brave New World, and everyone said, isn't it extraordinary that you didn't foresee nuclear power? Huxley said, no, what was really extraordinary on rereading it was I hadn't seen the advent of the self-operated lift. I still had lift men. I think what will happen is that upload and download will become completely blurred, that there won't be this thing called, that we perceive of now as the cloud. There will be this thing that we perhaps perceive of more accurately as the sky. It's all, it's all embracing and probably will be global. Now, what, what will be done with that? God knows. I have no idea. But the idea of there being a mass culture was essentially a one-to-many phenomenon. I think that will completely go. It will be something that emerges. I, Lord knows. Lord knows. It'll be exciting, but it will not be anything any of us have predicted. That's all I can predict for sure. Publicly funded arts projects may be under threat in the age of austerity, but we're told that there's never been a better time to participate in our nation's cultural life. Matthew Taylor, the Chief Executive of the Royal Society of Arts, gives us a state of play. I'm Matthew Taylor, I'm Chief Executive of the RSA. I think that one of the most exciting things that's happened in popular culture in the last few years has been the explosion of, of live and participative forms of, of activity. I uh, preside over an organisation which has a lecture programme. We have about 160 lectures a year, and they're almost all of them packed out. People wanting, people who could... Uh, go on the web and probably find a lecture by the person who's speaking here and watch that or they could buy the book or whatever, but they want to come and they want to hear the lecture and they want to participate in the conversation that takes place afterwards. The massive explosion in literary festivals, rock festivals, all types of kind of music festivals, local book festivals. So I think that there's been something very exciting that's happened in the last few years, which is that it's is that people seem to rediscover the value of of being there and being part of it uh, rather than sitting at home. There isn't here, therefore, a kind of dichotomy between the online world, which people are characterized as being highly individualistic and very niche, um, and the kind of world of live performance. In fact, they're both parts of the same thing, which is that people don't want to sit on their settees and lean back and watch content which is given to them and which they have no role in. What what they want to do, whether they're sitting at their computer and creating music or creating conversations or creating networks, or they're at rock festivals or debates, they want to be involved in this process of production and creativity.
the desire of people to get engaged, to participate, to be part of it is in some ways running ahead of the capacity of the sector to generate the right quality of experience. I think that the arts community, and of course that's a very difficult term, to what extent is there a community? There are lots of different communities. But those people who are concerned with arts need to be willing, first of all, to be realistic and self-critical about the context in which they find themselves. You know, If the arts sector reverts to a kind of special pleading, uh, attacking anybody who has to make difficult decisions about arts funding as being kind of philistine, then we're really not going to get very far. I think what we're going to have is then a kind of culture war in which there's a group of people who, on the one side, who kind of claim that the arts have a special case and are specially suffering, whilst the rest of society, generally speaking, is sceptical about that special case and says, hold on, actually the arts sector isn't suffering any more than any other sector, and indeed it seems to be suffering no more than sectors like health and education and crime, which are of more immediate and concrete significance to people's lives. And I think that that conversation will involve um, some kind of quite tough changes in, in, in the way in which we think. I think it is the case that in a context of austerity, big national arts institutions do have the capacity to possibly to raise more money from private philanthropy. And they need to do that in recognition of the fact that there are other parts of the arts sector, regionally, locally, more community-based arts, that will find it extremely difficult to access that kind of uh, private philanthropy. Whilst the arguments that are made for the impact of arts on society can never be the same as the kinds of arguments that are made in relation to the performance of schools in terms of exam results, the performance of hospitals in terms of people recovering from operations or waiting lists, that doesn't mean that arts can evade any accountability. It doesn't mean that the arts sector can say, well, we uniquely shouldn't really have to be responsible at all for providing evidence that what we're trying to achieve, whatever it is we're trying to achieve, is actually being achieved. Funding for quite a lot of community-based art is going to have to come out of budgets that haven't got art in their title. That is to say that the art sector is going to have to demonstrate that the contribution that it can make to the strength of a community, the capacity for people to be innovative, children's attachment to education, that these are areas where it's clear that good quality cultural practice can make a tangible difference to social outcomes. If the arts sector, the community arts sector, relies entirely on funding coming out of budgets with arts in their names, it's going to face a pretty grim few years. You've recently called for a new enlightenment for the 21st century. How critical a role does arts and culture play in developing this new enlightenment? Some kind of notion that I've talked about when I talk about 21st century enlightenment, which is a notion of citizenship, a notion of the kinds of people we need to be to flourish as a society, can, I think, provide a useful way of thinking about this. So what the art sector is saying is that we need citizens who are engaged, who are self-confident, who are creative. We need citizens also who, who are altruistic, who are pro-social, who want to associate with other citizens to achieve shared goals. And that if we have this model of citizenship, and this model of citizenship is essential, and of course this goes towards the government's arguments about the big society, then arts can play a role in helping to create that idea of citizenship. Which means that the arts sector is unafraid to say, yes, we are driven not just by some notion of abstract aesthetic quality, but we are also driven by the idea that arts help to create good lives in the good society. And we are not embarrassed to say that art is about helping to create good lives in the good society. 
Now, that's a bit of a hang-up. I mean, I, I heard a very intelligent, I, w- I won't name him, I don't want to cause a, create an enemy, but I heard a very, very intelligent community artist who, whose work with the community is fantastic at a conference just a few months ago on this issue saying, my work has no social purpose, and I reject the idea that it has a social purpose. Well, you know, that's fine. But if you say that, it's extremely difficult to explain to people why it is you should receive any taxpayers' money for what you do. We are going to face difficult times ahead. If the arts is going to have a voice in those times, which is not simply the voice of a bunch of people bleating and complaining, it will be the voice of a sector which connects the arts to a deeper yearning that we have in society, which is for lives which are fulfilled and for communities which feel that are vibrant and creative spaces. And so the arts has to re-engage in this conversation about the kind of lives we want to live and the kind of society that we want to live in. Oh, we used to do TV drama well. A Very British Coup, The History Man, House of Cards. Beautiful programmes, lovingly crafted in the UK. These days, television producers seem to think that there's something dramatic about Nick Berry portraying a newly appointed harbour master in a sleepy coastal town. A man who knows his drama is Ken Trodd, a British television producer who worked on the BBC's groundbreaking Play for Today series, which helped establish serious British drama on the small screen and fostered a generation of great British directing talent, including Ken Loach, Mike Lee, Stephen Polyakov and Dennis Potter. There is still a sense of something I was very much aware of in the, you know, the 70s, 80s and going well into the 90s, where in a way, as institutions, the television institutions are more secure than their political masters. So I think if you look at the Tories now, I think they're very uncertain you, you know, as to whether they really want to take a size to the BBC, whether they really want to be kind of nasty and satirite about it in the way that she did, she did 20, 20 years ago or more, or whether in a way... Um, those institutions are going to survive both in terms of their own prestige and their own power, as they have done, you know, this, this past 30 or 40 years. But it, it's, a tricky, it's a tricky one to read, I think. What technological developments are going to be, I don't know. I mean, I have a, I have a friend who's one of, the, not my, one of the richest people I've ever met, who I met on a, on a kind of very upmarket cruise, who, who, who says that, you know, the future of television is really pop-up, 3D stuff in your drawing room that you, you won't even need a set. You'll just switch on and in a sense you'll be, you'll be able to move between, you know, 3D, 3D animation and all television will adjust, to, will adjust to that form. Well, I don't think a lot, there are a lot of takers for that vision, but it may be that something like that is simply around the corner. Whether that will actually transform the content and trivialize it all, I don't know. But, you know, there is going to be 3D television. Well, I find 3D movies on the whole you know, pretty beside the point, um, because if you had those glasses and then take them off in the middle of the experience, it's not very different from not having them at all, except for the shots that are really designed to, you know, hit you, hit you between the eyes. Something really revolutionary, like, like the pop-up idea I've, I've mentioned to you, could well happen, and that would mean that anything is up to grabs. But I suspect that institutionally, you know, the license fee will continue. There may be some rather token, rather than nasty reality pruning of, of the amount we have to pay, which would really be just a gesture to, you know, to kind of voting dissatisfaction. But I, I don't think there's going to be kind of a massive, a massive change, because stability 
I suppose we should all take comfort for this, and that the stability of the, of the television organisations is still rather strong. I mean, Sky is formidable in its own way. ITV is clearly recovering as the economy recovers, if it does. And I think the BBC will manage to fight its corner so that you know, the changes are not going to be massive. Going forward over the next decade, do you think there is a way that there can be a paradigm shift back towards reclaiming integrity of creativity over kind of commercial aspiration? Well, I doubt it. I think what you'd need there, you would need an individual probably would, who would have to be a director general, and I don't think it's Mark Thompson for all his qualities, who would actually really believe in focusing that. And, and I suppose at, the, at the, the more micro level of program content in the areas that I know about, which is largely drama, what slightly dismays me is that with a few exceptions, even the better staff or the best staff is, is kind of okay rather than exciting. If you look at what's been currently or recently or about to be on, you know, to be fair, to, I suppose we're, we're just coming out of summer doldrums and every, every organization is entitled to a few turkeys. But for something like The Deep, you know, to be that series about the, the mini driver and the submarine, to be on for five or six weeks is quite extraordinary because the, the quality of the writing, the quality of the vision was really very poor, even though a lot of money had been spent on it. I saw yesterday a preview of a, a very sweet, you know, dutiful and earnest films about a Battle of Britain pilot. And it was very good and interesting in its way and, you know, good production values with a small budget. But you felt there was nothing here to make one sit up. And even for something historical like that, there should be. There's Sherlock Holmes, but I think that Sherlock Holmes worked at two costs. One, it was only three episodes, and they were surprised by its own success. And it's going to be another year and a half before they can capitalize that on by making, to making more. And two, it made Sherlock Holmes feel like Doctor Who. Well, that's, I suppose, a matter of taste, but it's also a, a pandering to a certain kind of attitude of the demographic, which um, is just imitative. So my sense is that, speculating and saying silly things, if there were a new Simon Gray or, or, or a Dennis Potter or, or whatever now, would they thrive? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I mean, I think talent will always come, always come through or will feel itself struggling. But the, the rather blurred and it was blurred, kind of acquiescence towards talent or little groups that focused on talent that there was in the past, I think that's gone. I think what you now have is a lot of workman, workmanship stuff and, and a kind of outcome which isn't in itself going to be strong enough to defend the right of creativity and oddity and danger and, and risk to, um, to be given its head. The means by which music is consumed, commented upon and even made has been altered beyond recognition by the unbridled evolution of technology. The ability to hear almost any piece of music, contextualise it by reading about it, and then make your own version of it, is never more than a few clicks and zero cost away. Music has also reached a point of unprecedented commercial association in terms of its use in advertising, film and television, as well as direct artist association with brands. In order to gauge how music's current cultural heartbeat has been affected by these huge changes, we spoke to Caius Pawson, who works for the pioneering XL record label and has helped break, sign and promote a plethora of bands and artists, including El Guincho, Gang Gang Dance, Holy Fuck and The XX. We also spoke to Jamie Hodgson, the new music editor of the UK's largest selling weekly music magazine, The Enemy. Hello, I'm Caius Pawson and I work at XL Recordings and Young Turks Records. How do you see the means of how people consume music shifting in the decade to come? 
Well, I, I don't think things will change quite as quickly as they have in the last decade, in this next decade, although that might be me denying the kind of inevitable truth. I would have thought that streaming services like Spotify will grow, uh, especially when they're getting, you know, kind of applications and bits of hardware that stream straight to Hi-Fi at home. I think people will still keep buying CDs. There's definitely a um, certain type of person who kind of always want the product and like won't have the time, the ability or the desire to download things illegally. There will be always be the music fan that want to collect things. Hopefully, you know, the product, be it vinyl or CD or something kind of crafted for people to kind of experience music as more than just an MP3 will stick about. That was what I was going to ask. Do you think there is like a degree of a kind of reactionary movement towards, as you were saying, physical product? Um, no, I mean, physical will always slowly slip away. I mean, just the ease with which you consume music, just like digitally means that for the majority of people, things like vinyl and CD aren't that useful. But there, you know, as I said before, and as you just said, there will always be people who want to own the vinyl, who collect vinyl for vinyl's sake. But a kind of mainstream buyer still prefers to buy a CD album rather than a digital album. I suppose that's more down to how they listen to the music, you know, hi-fis in their cars, the stereo in the kitchen, the stereo in the living room. It's still easier to, for most people just to put a CD in. What are your feelings towards the increased corporate artistic crossover in terms of how music's utilised in advertising or, you know, occasionally how bands will kind of be linked to a brand? Well, I suppose it depends on what the artist uh, or how the artist defines themselves and what they want to be about. I don't normally have a problem with artists using music in adverts or linking up with corporations, ones that make music which sells less and have less exposure because it's kind of a necessity to survive and, you know, carry on making your art. But there's like undoubtedly something kind of unattractive and kind of generally kind of makes me feel uncomfortable about bands you know, releasing albums just with brands or, you know, music just being there to sell another product. However, you know, times change. I think people's opinions have changed. It's no longer the taboo that it once was. Nearly everybody does it. Yeah, I mean, I don't hold anything against artists that want to do that, but I do respect ones that turn away from it all. And do you think that that's something that will be kind of on the rise over the next decade? Because it seems to have kind of spawned over the last five years or so, and it seems to be well, increasing. It's, pre- it's pretty huge now. Like, I mean, even though, you know, the press always harps on about, the, you know, the music industry, like, shrinking rapidly, like, music feels bigger than ever. Like, music is such a big kind of art form and, you know, uh, type of media it's everywhere. It's in adverts, as you said. Brands are sponsoring festivals everywhere. More people are going to festivals, concerts, like, you know, it feels like people consuming music more and more than ever. I don't know if the kind of, the culture of brands, just like jumping on any bit of music they can, will continue, but uh, it definitely doesn't feel like it'll stop anytime soon. Do you feel that this brand involvement is diluting creativity in the music industry as a whole? No, I think that's kind of too broad a statement. You know, you'd have to go case by case. If you are altering your music to include, a, you know, a brand's vision in it, then yeah, it would definitely be. But I don't, I mean, I think most brands still want artists who they are, I would have thought. I mean, I wouldn't want, you know, an artist to adapt, then I wouldn't be buying into them. 
Sure. And is there anything else that you can kind of see changing, I guess, over the next decade? Internet music phenomena seems to be getting bigger and bigger and seem to last even shorter. I mean, you always had people breaking through MySpace and things like that, but they were always aided by kind of more mass media things. So, you know, Lily Allen might have been the MySpace artist, but it was, you know, major radio play that really kind of propelled the fame. However, like, you know, in the last year alone, Susan Boyle and Justin Bieber became two of the world's biggest artists purely through internet clips. Um, and it just happened so quickly. And I wonder if that will mean that they'll disappear more quickly as well. But uh, I kind of foresee that, you know, the internet not just being something that sparks general media interest, but being the kind of like the means and the ends of an artist's promotion. My name is Jamie Hodgson and I'm um, a journalist. I work at the NME as their new music editor. What do you feel have been the biggest changes in the way that music's been discovered and subsequently consumed over the last decade? You can think of new ways of trying to dress that answer up, but you just can't get away from the fact that you're going to be trying to explain the impact of the internet. The younger generation that are growing up and kind of becoming young adults now, the characteristics that you kind of define them by just being way more open to different subcultures, way less precious and romanticized about the idea of traditional tribes. These days, you can just dip into what, to whatever you like. And, and because of that, I think, A, young people are so much more open to just picking the very best of whatever scene that it is. They have more of a sense of detachment from it all, that they can have you know, way more context to everything, that they can understand and see the value in different styles way more. Also, that you're getting these amazing kind of curmudgeon hybrid sounds, which literally have traces of so many, you know, more baffling elements than, than you'd ever have conceived of having, say, 10, 15, 20 years ago. Do you see kind of that broad saturation that you've just described? Do you see it overall, though, as, as a positive thing in terms of the actual music that's being created? It's neither a good nor a bad thing. It just is, and it's, it's what's happening, and it's what is now with a capital letter. I think, um, I think we just need to accept that and embrace it, and anyone that tries to kind of fight against that and try and stop that from happening or try and, you know, attach themselves to something that's completely out of tune with that is going to find themselves brushed aside or, you know, is, is going to find themselves not working in, in, in tune with what's happening. Do you think the age of classic era-defining albums is over? I think it'd be a pretty bleak outlook to say that the current record industry can't produce work that defines the moment and that we'll look back on in 10, 15 years, 20, 30, whatever, however many years time and, and say, yeah, that kind of typifies the zeitgeist of that time, you know. Are we going to look back for Gargar Mania in the past 18 months to two years and not go, oh, that really typified noughties, tenties, whatever we're calling this, this decade, crossover period. I find it really hard to believe that there won't be a shred of that feeling around everything that she's done. You know, we're certainly seeing a very different 
type of star created. You know, people talk about the death of the icon, the death of the real pop stars. But that's, you know, people that are attaching themselves to a very kind of heritage-based kind of nostalgic image of what a pop star can be and what an icon can be and what a defining, you know, album can be. I think the role of critics and the role of journalists is, is something that will always serve a purpose. I think, A, it's something that people like to have. They like to have an opinion to either uh, align themselves with or to rally against and to really get themselves het up. It's a good kind of jousting tool. I think it's one that really serves a purpose and, and, and serves as much of a purpose now as it ever has done. I think if you look at the magazines and the titles that are really flying at the moment and the ones, <laughs> when I say flying, I mean not about to close, <laughs> I think it's a very easy to draw a line and see which ones have worked out innovative and powerful ways of having an online presence. The single lowest point in my cultural life came about 11 years ago, walking out of Putney Odeon after watching two-thirds of a British film called Human Traffic. I felt ashamed that my fellow countrymen could produce something so vapid, with such nauseating dialogue, that I renounced my nationality, cancelled my subscription to Empire, and have spent the last decade watching the films of Lucas Moodison on loop. John Sim thinks he can play Hamlet. He can barely play a 20-something chemical generation clubber. Anyway, is it now safe to get back into Britflix? We spoke to the director of the British Film Institute, Amanda Neville, about the state of British filmmaking. My name is Amanda Neville. I run the British Film Institute, the BFI. I think we are so massively at the forefront of world cinema. I think if you were to take out of global cinema everything that happens because of Britain and the people of Britain and the legacy and the cultural bedrock upon which Britain is made and the stories that have been written by British, I think I think we'd have a crisis in world cinema overnight. I mean, Britain is such a central place for creativity, stories, post-production skills, writers. We've got Harry Potter. Mm, wonder where that came from. We've got Lord of the Rings. Mm, wonder where that came from. That came out of, you know, great British culture and British sensibilities were needed. They were shot in Britain with lots of classic British actors in there. Film's a global business anyway. I mean, there are very few films that, you know, the, the more money you can get from, you know, different countries and different sources, who cares as long as you get those things? Or Bond. Bond is as British as you can get. I mean, they've been shot here forever. Um, we ha- we've had British bonds, British money or very good, you know, partnerships with the States. I mean, it's one of the great sort of icons of British cinema. So Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings and Bond, and I could go on, Bridget Jones. And then if you wanted to move into more individual or more distinctive, different sort of filmmaking recent times, you've got Slumdog Millionaire, which, you know, took the world by storm. When I look at the picture, I actually see something quite exciting and very interesting and whenever you look at these you know top budget the films that really make you think and yet are absolutely attracting you know the big audiences actually when you get underneath the skin of the good films Britain's in there somewhere you know somewhere or another we see that individuals need like a choice 
So, I mean, you know, throughout history, you know, when video came along, or when television came along, they said film was dead. When video came along, they said the cinemas would be dead. And often what happens is there is a dip. It's almost like we all jump onto the new thing and then we sort of migrate back because actually we want both. I think people like that choice. Perversely, as well, I think that as you can, or we're moving into a world where it will be possible for us to consume pretty much whatever we want, our own sitting rooms, I think two things are going to happen. Number one is that I think culture is going to change dramatically because it's going to be less, there's going to be two polarised things. There's going to be, one, people are able to build up their own individual collections with much greater ease. I think that's going to mean that there's going to be less mass market for home consumed culture, for want of a better word. But the other thing is that the more that people are aware of, of the choice there is and the fact that you can get this all in your front sitting room, the more that actually we really yearn for and start to value those congregational experiences. And, you know, there are two things I have to point out which I think are showing this. One is um, music festivals, which I think have had a real renaissance in recent years, and they've become more than just music festivals. I mean, you know, the BFI goes to music festivals. We put films and things on there. They become, they're starting to become this much broader congregational experience. I mean, the other thing is all these pop-up activities. I mean, there are pop-up cinema activities like Secret Cinema where they're, you know, they're one-off events where you can experience something you know, with a, a big group of people, and we seem to really enjoy that. So I could imagine that 10, 15 years ago, people were saying, well, you know, cinema is dead. Um, because you'll be able to get everything you need in your sitting room. The bizarre thing is the more choice you can get in your sitting room, the more you start to appreciate the, you know, in getting culture surrounded by people who are both you know, enjoying the same experience as you are. Working at the BFI, one thing I humbly find out all the time is there is loads of different cultures, some of which are impenetrable for me. I'm too old for them don't really understand them, some of them which are born online before they actually make it into the cinemas, you know, in live events. I don't think we should worry about that because I think anybody who's interested in British life and does anything that is in some way creative is part of that cultural heartbeat that makes up Britain. Okay, they might not be going to the theatre, they might not be going to see Slumdog Millionaire, but culture is a much broader concept than just that classical, you know, list, list of, of the art. So I think the first thing I would say is nobody's actually really tied down what British cultural life means. It could be a street party. It could be taking place, you know, bonfire night. It could be all sitting down to watch the Olympics happen, even if you're watching it on the television, you know, the torch going through London or wherever it's going to run through. For me, that is you know, a much broader brush, more exciting scenario. I think the other thing is that one of the big significant changes going forward, which I don't think will be out of the reach of anybody uh, very shortly, is that by and large, British cultural life until the digital age meant you going to something or watching something that somebody else had created for you and you liked or you didn't like it. Whereas actually what the digital world means is that you are just as likely to be having a two-way conversation with that and being able to actually influence the content. So I think that level of interactivity is going to be really, really interesting. And that isn't a question of um, by 
by and large economic status, it is a little bit still now, you know, the numbers of people who won't have access to online and where the, you know, the geographical and other, you know, obstacles that there might be there between them and the cultural activity are going to sort of vanish. One of the oldest cultural mediums on the planet, the printed book has faced a number of challenges over the last decade. The ubiquity of Amazon and online retailers had a profound effect on the high street with chain stores and independent bookshops closing in droves. The public's penchant for celebrity autobiography saw supermarket checkouts bizarrely emerge as a major force in book sales, and the recent popularity of e-readers and digital book buying spells yet another step in the continuing journey of how we consume words. We spoke to Dan Franklin, an editor at the prominent UK independent publisher Canongate, who also oversees the company's digital list to see where the book will be in 2020. Dan Franklin, I'm the digital editor at Canongate Books, probably best known recently for publishing um, Barack Obama's two autobiographies. One of the most significant changes in, in the last 10 years has been the, the advent and rise and rise and rise of Amazon and buying books online. And that really took off in a, in a meaningful way in sort of late 2004, 2005, you know, 10 years ago, the turn of the millennium, there were a number of high street bookselling chains, most notably Waterstones and Otkers, and a pretty, you know, healthy independent bookshop scene as well. What happened since then is that Otkers is no longer Borders, has, has gone bust in the UK. You're really seeing a more and more unstable high street when it comes to selling books, but that is coupled with a really emerging market with supermarkets and books being sold alongside groceries in quite a big way. Concurrent with that, it was the Richard and Judy effect, which came about sort of five years ago as well, where they started to do their book club. And what happened was that they actually were starting to discuss and plug what were actually very, very good books by anyone's standard, you know, literary books, not just sort of trashy populist books. And the real beneficiary of that was David Mitchell. Cloud Atlas was one of the sort of real vanguard books, and that sold a huge amount of copies off the back of the Richard and Judy tag and being promoted. And that started a new trend as well, where, where publishers were trying to get into these promotions and these slots, really get to a much more mass market audience, if they're a literary publisher particularly, that crash in 2008 coincided with the launch of the Sony e-reader in the UK and Waterstones as well, sort of launching their e-book site. And since then, it's just been an absolutely sort of meteoric growth in digital sales of e-books. And in the UK particularly, it's a very fragmented market. There's a lot of players involved and no one has become dominant. In the US, Kindle, Amazon's, e-reading device was launched quite early on and really took root there and e-reading in the US is synonymous with the Kindle. The iPad obviously emerged in the spring and you're starting to see some real really interesting developments with tablet technology which lends itself very nicely to reading. Really where we're at now is a, a healthy place I think because I think the high streets had to reassess how they sell books and independents really have to think on their feet about how to reach an audience. So you're seeing a real growth in live events and really more and more ways in which readers can get stories. And I think that's the most interesting thing about the digital is that it's probably the first new format in reading since the paperback. Do you think that the 2010s will be the, I suppose, first era where aspiring writers sidestep the big 
publishing houses and go it alone? Yes and no. I think it. I think it's going to be the first year where authors who can't get published by conventional means through a book deal with a, with a publisher, big or small. It means if they don't get those deals, that they're not completely stuffed. That they actually have avenues now where they can disseminate their work and they can use the internet and social networking, particularly, to get their message out. And in the case of someone, you know, like Amazon, they can sign exclusive deals with a digital publisher or or a digital platform, and they can agree a royalty and do direct selling like that. I don't think, though that what this means is that there's this buzzword, although it's not a very buzzy word, called disintermediation, where, which essentially means you're cutting out the middleman in a relationship between an author and a retailer, i.e. a publisher. So some people are arguing that, you know, you could get rid of the publisher and the author can go direct to the retailer, but I still think that the publisher adds huge value to any publication of any book, you know, whether that's the sales and marketing infrastructure or whether it's um, editorial advice or whether it's just fronting up some money in order for them to get a start publishing. I mean, essentially, like when you boil it down to everything else, a publisher behaves like a bank, you know, giving you a loan. But at the same time, there's a lot of, you know, re- redefining people's roles in all of this. There are people who are developing now for apps and developing ebooks. What used to be technology companies now, which are calling themselves digital publishers, and there's agencies as well who previously, you know, simply agencies for their authors, but now themselves are representing their authors to the marketplace and selling, setting themselves up as a sort of retailer. And there'll be a lot more direct to customer selling through publishing websites as well. So, you know, there's a lot up in the air at the moment, and it's all about seeing where everything lands. And I don't think it's necessarily going to happen. I think we'll be in a state of flux for, for, you know, maybe up to five years before we all see how all this settles. Do you think that the the level of changes and the kind of books that are selling particularly are going to have an effect on actually what's being written and the quality of what's being written. And do you still think that a good book will out? Yeah, I've got, you've got to believe that good books will out because that's really what it depends. You can be in the business for different reasons. You can be in the business to publish celebrity trash, which, you know, will sell. Or you can believe that you're trying to put across, you know, something meaningful that people will enjoy. But the interesting trends that you're seeing with digital the books that do well are um, genre, particularly, you know, science fiction, as you might imagine, plays out well, as does crime, but genre books always do sell well. But then you get, um, there's a good market for erotic novels, digitally, if that's sort of under-the-counter thing, you don't need to go up and buy, you know, face up to uh, someone in a bookshop if you're buying an erotic novel, you can just do it online. Not that I'm saying that everyone who buys erotic novels wants to do it um, on the sly, but it's definitely there. People like Mills and Boone have been selling, you know, digitally for a long time and doing extremely well out of it. Also, business business stuff works really nicely. You know, anything that's sort of pop science or businessy really plays to an online market, the sort of guys who would read, the audience that would read Wired magazine. So we're finding that some of our best-selling books are books in that market, and they're selling much better relatively digitally than they are in print. Do you think there will be, or do you fear that there will be a point where physical comes to an end, or do you think there will always be a market in terms of the, the heritage industry that will always want print? Yeah, I, I do. I think, I think there will always be print books. I'll qualify that. I don't know how many print books there'll be. Some people are projecting five years' time, maybe slightly longer, something like 2018. There'll be 50-50 print and digital books. You know, digital will account for 50%. Some people are saying it'll be more like 25%. I think the way physical books will change is that, you know, the digital and the physical editions of anything will talk to each other a lot more. They'll be complementary. There'll be more of an onus on beautiful print books 
things that you feel you have to own or have to give to each other in order to justify them. I think the bigger, much more fundamental shift, and I, I guess that people in the music industry are probably picking up on this too, is you know there's a big movement in youth culture which just doesn't care about actually owning anything. We've come from a period, you know, in the 80s of the CD where it was just an absolute huge boom of buying these sort of disc copies of music that moved on to downloads. But I think soon, and I think it's happening with services like Spotify, you're moving away even from downloading and actually owning anything and that everything will soon, or I think there'll be a big trend where a lot of content will be held in the cloud, as they call it, on servers. And I think that's where the most interesting transition will go. And I I think there's going to be a generation coming through of kids who just, who don't care about whether they own the content that entertains them. And we thought we'd give the last word this week to a real visionary, curator and artist, Honor Harja. I think there's a lot of hope for intelligent and subversive culture um, within the next decade. I think we're living in really interesting times where um, pretty much everything we knew about the way things were meant to be artistically and culturally over the past 20 years is in the process of either being dismantled or falling apart of its own accord or being challenged on all sides economically, structurally and politically. And I think that this means that there's more need for, you know, intelligent, subversive culture than perhaps there has been at any other point in a generation. And where there's a need, there's a way, you know. I mean, I am certain that we're going to find some quite sort of special and quite kind of creative responses to this particular context that we're living through in the next 10 years. And I like to think that we live in a very exciting times. I think the um, the context in which visual arts is shown, whether it be in galleries or in museums, is going through a really interesting point of, of, of evolution and change. We've seen in the last sort of 10 to 15 years a kind of tectonic shift in terms of where the power structures are in the visual arts world with the rise of the art fairs. Um, in London, we've got you know pretty direct experience of that through, through Freeze Art Fair, who resonates with every year. And in other countries like Switzerland, we've, we're starting to see the power of, you know, kind of art Basel almost eclipsing the, the traditional kind of roles that galleries and museums used to play. So given that tectonic shift, which has already taken place, we have to assume that further changes, shifts and evolutions are, are, are going to happen within the next decade to, um, to two decades. I think what is interesting from my perspective as a curator who's often engaging with artists whose practice is technologically engaged is how alternative non-physical spaces are going to you know, sort of start exerting their, their import. What we're starting to see emerging right now, and this is a fairly recent phenomenon, is, is artists starting to intelligently immerse and, and engage with mobile technologies. So starting to make works which are entirely sort of site-specific for mobile platforms like the iPad, the iPhone, um, or smartphones. And as that trend starts to you know, continue to, to evolve, we're going to see a sort of a changing role for um, galleries and exhibiting institutions in much the same way as channels like YouTube and, and Twitter have, have made it possible for musicians to speak directly to their audience without the need for the intervention of a record company, artists being able to effectively create work which can be you know, distributed and downloaded directly by their audiences without necessarily the need for the intervention of a gallery, you know, obviously fundamentally change those sort of power dynamics that traditionally exist between galleries and artists. 
Can you envisage a future where it's possible for artists to be commercially successful and maintain their integrity without selling out to corporate interests? Yeah, I can actually. I'm really hopeful. I don't think, you know, the economic retraction of the public sector is necessarily going to lead to um, an apocalypse for individual artists. Artists are actually incredibly well suited to managing, you know, their lives through difficult economic times. They're naturally quite entrepreneurial. I'm very hopeful about, you know, artists creating innovative strategies that we haven't even thought of, you know, everything from creating, you know, pop-up galleries and and disused shops to, you know, creating their own sort of forums online to, you know, setting up their own radio stations or television stations, which will enable them to manage some form of kind of economic independence without necessarily the need to sell out. So, you know, I don't think there's anything special necessarily about you know, the challenges that, that artists face now that hasn't existed in some form or other, you know, for a generation. And like in other generations, artists will always find a way of being able to get through and manage. I do think the market will have to adapt. And I think to a certain extent it is adapting. The sort of slightly insidious and, and scary thing about markets is that they're, they're quite flexible and quite able to adapt. And they'll have to adapt, you know. I mean, we're starting to see really interesting examples of hybridised and sort of plural forms of practice, such as the work of someone like Corey Archangel, who is very much immersed within a sort of contemporary visual arts gallery context and, you know, sort of often shows and art fairs, has, has a commercially successful art practice, but yet also releases all of the, the code for his software-based projects free on the internet. It's all open source. It's all available for other artists and other, you know, kind of coders and other sort of software designers to download and remake his projects, you know, kind of and change, you know, the the sort of the language in in the process of doing so. So we're seeing here a really interesting example of, of a practitioner who has one foot in the, let's say, kind of slightly more traditional visual arts sector and one foot in the quite radical free and open source if you want, code sector, and he's able to, you know, successfully exist within within both fields and, you know, draw from both languages and both tropes within his practice. And I don't think this will be an exception. I think increasingly that type of plurality will become the rule. Do you think that traditional institutions that took pride in displaying arts now see themselves as under threat because individual artists can display their work away from these central institutions? I think if institutions are feeling under threat from these kinds of, let's say, sort of more DIY practices, they're somehow, you know, kind of failing as institutions. Because I think the role of institutions now is just as significant as it ever has been. They just need to slightly change what they do. And we see this happening all the time. I mean, an organization like Tate is a really good example of a incredibly large organization that's actually very light on its feet in terms of being able to adapt to technological and um, display challenges. They were very quick to, you know, look at the potential of the internet as a broadcasting platform. They were very quick to almost sort of try and consider the role of a museum as as a slightly different space, as a sort of media production space. And if a massive, you know, kind of oil tanker sort of sized um, uh, institution like Tate can do that, then I think sort of smaller and yet very significant institutions can as well. If you want the sort of democratizing potential of these new social and technological um, contexts, if that's considered as a threat, 
it's only because institutions haven't necessarily got the right plan to exploit, learn from and take advantage of these trends. Um, I just wanted to ask a quick question about geography, because I know that you um, were the artistic director of the Avia Festival, is that correct? Yes, that's right. Um, Which took place kind of in the north of England, in Newcastle and Gateshead and places like that. Do you think this kind of shift of all these things that we've talked about is democratising place as well? You know, you can create art and show art in places that are outside of the traditional centres of art, you know, London, for example, or Paris or Basel. Yeah, that's an interesting question because I would say that the the question around geography and whether or not social and technological change has made certain, let's say, more remote geographical places more able to be cultural hotspots is not perhaps as significant as the, the economic and social conditions which led to certain regions and certain cities becoming, if you want, sort of alternative artistic and cultural centres. If you want the sort of social and economic context around the northeast of England, where I was working as a director of the AV Festival, is very specific. And the kind of the vision of the politicians, the councils, the people from the Regional Development Authority in Newcastle, Gateshead, Sunderland and Middlesbrough was really instrumental in allowing an incredibly ambitious commissioning biennial such as the AV Festival to come into being. Of course, the increased mobility that you know the internet enables the increased communication possibilities um, that you know mobile telephony and video conferencing enables played a part but I, I wouldn't want to underestimate the the incredibly important role that that sort of quite traditional public sector investment played in making a, a project like that possible and I, I worry a little bit that, you know, the economic context that we are existing in at the moment and the shrinking of the public sector it will make a conversely difficult scenario for those far-flung kind of regional centres and they may lose some of the uh, incredible value that's been built up in the last years. That's it for 2020 Visions. Hope you've enjoyed the series. If you want to drop us an email, please write to bizandrys, B-I-Z-A-N-D-R-Y-S, at ymail.com. Take it easy. Thing I receive.